no mess around today. I'm just going to open up the Bible and begin to teach. And then we're going to uh, we're going to do this moment, this prayer, this liturgy, and then we're going to uh, receive communion. So uh, are you guys ready to go? Have you done your spiritual uh, calisthenics before you came here? Have you? Okay. Because we're just going to jump right into this. I've never done this before, but, and you guys have probably never been to a church service that this has been done before, so we'll, we'll go with it together. Chapter 5, verse 38, and you guys will figure out why this is such a challenge and so difficult. Uh, Jesus says this, you've heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with them two miles. Okay. Um, I'll, I hope some of you are with me, but does anyone find these passages a bit difficult? Have you ever struggled with this throughout your journey of being human? If you have, raise your hand. Yes. Yes. Um, and here's, I want to start off with this, that this is not suggesting, as has often been taught, that Christians are to be passive in the face of violence or in the face of abuse. That is not what this is saying. So I just want to say that right from the top, that Jesus is saying something else. But there is a part of our religious culture and our Christianity that teaches that we are to be passive and somehow take abuse, and that is what Christ is inviting us to. No. If we are in a place of abuse, we should do everything we could to remove ourselves from it and to, to actually resist it. And, and what we're going to find here, Jesus has this creative way of how we could begin to resist this. But he's not saying be passive. So when you read this on the surface, you think there's two options. Um, the first one is, okay, well, if, if someone's doing violence to me, what can I do? I can do what? I could do violence back to them, right? So that's one option that we have. And the other option is that we would somehow just take it and be wimps for Jesus, like that is the Christ-like thing to do. Well, I just, I want you to hear right at the top here, Jesus is not inviting us to either of those. And I know those seem like the only two options, but there's something very creative going on here that I want to I wanna get to. I want to start off by showing you this word resist. So what does the Bible mean when it says resist? It is this Greek word, if you'll put that up, everyone say this with me, it's Antistenized. Say that with me. You ready? Antistenized. You sound so scholarly and so American. Antistenized. <laughs> uh, there, um, uh, we have what is called the Septuagint, and uh, the Septuagint was written in Greek. It took the Hebrew Bible, okay, and this is like second century, third century. And they translated the Hebrew Bible at the time, which is all we had, was in the language of Hebrew and some Aramaic. And then around the second century, we translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. So when they were translating this word in the Hebrew Bible of resist, it was that word antistenai. And it's a technical term meaning armed warfare. So whenever you see that word resist in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible is this. It is, it is symbolic of two armies coming together, and at the point they meet, um, it's armed warfare. You know, it's like, go at it. 
um, engage with each other and don't relent until you've taken out your enemy. So when the Bible uses the word resist, that's what it's saying, don't resist. It's saying when you do find yourself in this encounter in some way, he's saying don't push through. And just, you know, back then it was, you would, they would gut each other. That's, that sounds really gross and barbaric, but that is what that word is symbolic of. So whenever you see that word, it is a technical term meaning armed warfare. But here's maybe a better way to say it. When Jesus says don't resist, he's saying this. Because just the word resist in the Greek, it's actually not strong enough at all to portray this. It's don't use violence to resist evil. You see the difference there? So it's don't just be passive and and don't resist, but it's don't use violence when you resist evil. Okay, that's going to that's going to be very important. Or maybe you could say it like this. Maybe there's another way you could say it. Don't become the evil that's being done to you. Okay, this is where we have to start. Now, there are some creative things that Jesus does with these three texts and I want to show you because we have to be creative like him. Because the answers aren't always easy how we don't don't become the evil that's being done to us, right? It's like, that's not always easy. That's not always apparent. But it is something that should click. Like, we are invited as human beings by Jesus to go, whatever's being done to us, we can't become that same evil. So, it's a creative move here that Jesus uh, begins to make. So, essentially, Jesus is saying, don't resist evil violently when he says, don't resist. And he gives us three examples here. Um, It's turning the other cheek. It's when someone takes your... uh, you know, sues you and takes your shirt, give them your coat also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. I'm going to start with the, the last two first, and then because I want to do an example on the first one. Um, when it says uh, if they force you to go one mile, go two, here's the interesting thing about this. Um, Roman soldiers were not allowed, they were, they were allowed to have someone carry their, their gear for a mile, but they were not allowed to, to demand that someone go further than a mile. So Jesus, it was unlawful for Roman soldiers to do that. So Jesus is being very creative here. So you're walking along with the soldier, and he stops at the mile because he knows if you go any further, he's getting in trouble. Jesus says, keep going. It's subversive what he's saying to do. So you keep walking, and the Roman soldier goes, no, 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 wait a minute. No, no, you can't do that. Don't, don't go another mile. You're going to get me in trouble. So what Jesus is saying here, hey, don't just take more abuse. He's saying, listen, I want you to put these Roman soldiers on the defensive. And Help them see how they are treating. So it's a very creative way that Jesus is doing this. It isn't just saying, hey, go another mile and take more abuse. You seeing that? Okay, the other thing is, um, he says in here, uh, if someone takes your shirt, give them your coat. In culture, um, they only had two pieces of clothing, your undergarment and your overgarment. So if someone takes your shirt, you're to give them your cloak. What is left? You're naked, right? So essentially, this is so subversive what Jesus is saying to do here. And here is what happens in this ancient culture. To see someone naked puts shame on you, not on the naked person. So what Jesus is doing here so subversively and so creatively, he goes, someone takes it, you put them in the place of shame because they're disrespecting you. So these are just completely different ways to think about this. Okay, now we got the turning the cheek one, which we probably have all heard. We've heard it misused. We've probably wrestled with it 
in our own lives in some way. So I need someone to help me. Who would, who would like to get in a slapping match with the pastor this morning? Someone? No one? Come on up, Tim. Yes. <laughs> he, yeah, you would love to hit the pastor, right? Everyone say hello to Tim. <laughs> okay. And by the way, a lot of what I'm teaching this morning, you could look up this guy, Walter Wink. Um, he's done videos. He's no longer with us, but he was a New Testament scholar. And so a lot of my understanding of how I see this, um, I've, I've got from Walter Wink. And you could actually pick up the illustration I'm going to do here. So if you don't get it in me doing it, go to the real scholar, Walter Wink, and you'll learn a whole lot more about how Jesus actually meant these texts to be. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. Yes. Um, first of all, what we have to do, Jesus says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, right? Turn to them would be your left cheek. Which one's your right cheek, Tim? It's your right cheek. Okay. You're not going to hit me, are you? <laughs> He's bigger than me. Okay. Um, right. I just don't want to play. So if, if I'm going to hit you on the right cheek, here is what I'm going to have to do. Now, first of all, we all need to know this. Um, in a Semitic culture, your left hand, does anyone know what your left hand was used for? What do you think? Wiping your butt. <laughs> Wiping your butt. We're being real honest and cruel here this morning. You're absolutely right. Sanitary reasons. You guys are right. So the left hand wasn't even to be used for gestures. Like, it was totally, you know, not to be used except for sanitary purposes. So if I'm going to hit you on your right cheek, what am I going to have to do? Okay, I'm going to have to hit you this way. Okay, now here's the other thing. Yeah, so it's a backhand. He says if someone slaps you, that's why he says slap, because they didn't punch. And I want to tell you that's significant here in a moment, but I would have to hit you with my backhand. And the way that that is used, it's to put him in submission. It is slave owners doing that to slaves. It's Roman soldiers doing that to the common folk. You know, it's, a, it's, it's putting someone back in their place and going, I have more worth than you do, you know, and I have authority over you. So that was always used in that way. So, um, here's the interesting thing. And you never used your fist to punch someone that was lower than you. Because to use your fist put that person on equal ground and made them an equal. So, if I'm going to hit him, slap him on the right side of the face, first of all, it's going to go this way, right? Now, he says to turn the cheek and give him the other one. Okay, what move do I have? I can't backhand you with my left hand because it's out of bounds. I really can't slap you unless I'm going to look like a girl doing it. You know? uh, I can't really slap you with it. I guess I could, but it would be really awkward. I have one option, and it's what? Open hand. It's, well, it's my fist. So now, if you turn, your, turn that face to me, now the only hit that I have is to come at you. And Jesus is saying, don't take more abuse. He says, you put them on equal ground with you. You force them to hit you with a fist because that makes you equal. Okay, give it up for Tim. Thank you, Tim. And no one got hurt in that experiment, thank God. Okay, so um, what Jesus is doing here is unbelievably subversive and creative. And so, uh, yeah, sometimes the text can be just real plain, and sometimes the text invites us to go a little deeper and to understand what's happening in the first century. What does this mean in that culture? And I remember when I heard this from Walter Wink, I'm like, that totally changes how I even understand this. But here's where I want it to help us. But uh, 
N.T. Wright, he says this, and I want to show this to you. He says, Jesus offers a new sort of justice, a creative, healing, restorative justice. The old justice found in the Bible was designed to prevent revenge running away with itself. Remember what he said early on? He says, you heard it said, what? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's saying, this writer here is saying, hey, that mattered at one point because what you didn't want to happen is just violence escalating. So you at least wanted to limit it. If they did that to you, then you get to do the same thing back to them. But, uh, but Jesus goes on to say, or no, not Jesus, the Old Testament says, better an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth than an escalating feud with each other, with each side going one worse than the other. But Jesus goes one better still. And this is just how creative and, and wonderfully creative and beautiful Jesus is. Better to have no vengeance at all, but rather a creative way forward, reflecting the astonishing, patient love of God himself, who wants Israel, and I would say us in here as we've read this in the text, he wants Israel and us to shine his light into the world so that all people will see that he is the one true God and that his deepest nature is overflowing love. So what Jesus is actually inviting us to do here and um, what is our work to figure out as we deepen and grow in our faith and what it means to trust Christ and what it means to follow Jesus is that what are the ways of creative, creatively resisting violence or abuse or um, even just emotional hurt or being wounded by relationships? What are the creative ways that somehow we could use love in a redemptive way? Because I think that's what the cross shows us more than anything, is that violence just going, giving back violence just keeps repeating itself over and over. And at some point, the world needs something to go, enough, the violence stops here. There has to be a more creative way to deal with this violence. And so what the cross shows us is that there is this power, this redemptive, creative thing that happens when love shows up in some way. So here's the thing. It's not saying, if you're in an abusive situation, stay in it until you figure it out. Get out of it. Um, you know, find help that you need to, to, to be safe and to find freedom from that. But can we also keep our hearts engaged in such a way that we won't become that evil? That no matter what someone does to us, that we could be the kinds of human beings that are growing in a way that is responding in creative ways, not only to make us better, but to make the world better. Now, here is the truth. I was a little boy and um, would always see images of the cross, you know, as a little boy. And there was something that was just magnetic about it to me. And I remember uh, Carrington, she, oh, she's back there helping with the kids. My oldest daughter, she went to um, Aquinas for a while. And I grew up, sometimes I went to Catholic Mass on my dad's side of the family. Sometimes I went to Protestant church with my mom. But... Um, my daughter called me at a corner. She says, Dad, she says, there are crucifix everywhere with Jesus bleeding on the cross in like every room here. She goes, I've never been in a place that saw that so much because in Protestantism, we usually have the cross, but not with Jesus on it bleeding, right? But in Catholicism, a lot of times the crucifix has Jesus bleeding. 
And I was like, yeah, that's totally different than what we've experienced in our upbringing. But I said all that to say this. When I was a little boy, there was something about the crucifix, whether Jesus was on it or not, that touched me at a deep place. And there was something about that kind of sacrificial love on display. Um, ah, sorry. That I'm like, maybe there is Maybe this cross isn't just something where we take juice and we eat some bread and then we go about our merry way. Maybe there is something about the redemptive work of this cross that matters to me. And I wonder how I might be able to move my life, no matter what it faces, in this creative way like Jesus does in these texts and what he does on the cross. Okay. I want to show you the second part of this, though, because this is really important. So Jesus, what he's doing here, he's saying resist, but he's saying, I want to give you, I want to empower you with a, a weapon of the Spirit that's called love. And if you're sitting here and you just think love is a sentimental thing or this just fleeting thing that comes and goes, that's not the kind of love that the Scriptures are talking about. They are talking about the, one of the most powerful forces in the universe. Love has this redemptive healing power. And if we can trust it, even when we're in difficult places, I think Jesus says, not only does something happen in the world around us, something happens in the world of our, our insides that changes the way we go through difficult things, changes the way that we even see abuse in the world. So the resist is let's open our hearts to this weapon of the spirit called love. So, and then Jesus goes on here and says this, which is difficult for, for me still. You've heard it said, love your enemy, no, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I've struggled with this text my entire life because there are so many opportunities in life where, I'll be honest, I sometimes feel there's only those two choices. Just take it, be a good little Christian, and my heart's growing, but that's abuse. Like, I shouldn't have to take that. I don't think that's being Christian. Um, but I find myself sometimes choosing that and trying to be perfect as my father is perfect in that way, or I find myself going, I've had it. You're going to get back what you gave to me. Like, what other option is there? And that's what's so subversive and so revolutionary about this is that at this point in the world, those were the only two options. And now Jesus gives us a third, which is this 
creative way of being. Now, first of all, if you look at this, essentially Jesus, uh, Jesus is saying here that God looks on all of us equally. Uh, I don't care what your race is, what your religion is, that there is something within every human being that is of God's image. And I know we tend to gravitate to people that just look like us and think we're the only ones that have that image, but this text is saying God is no respecter of persons. He looks equally on every human being he's created, and he sees his divine image somewhere in them. And I, so I think we have to start here that if we're going to be people that are perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect in the way Jesus is inviting us here, then it has to begin with I have to do my best to find that sometimes inkling of the image of God in another. Because when we're actually doing that as human beings, we're actually living the life of God in us. That's what this whole text is about. That as human beings, we've been given the breath of life. It's a gift. And we've been given these lives to live and to enjoy and to live in a particular way. And it's, it is the life of God. But it comes along with we have to be human in the way God's made us. So, and part of being human in the way God made us is that we have to work sometimes very difficult and sometimes it's very hard to find that image in another. But I just want you to know, whenever you do that, you are doing a good thing for yourself because you are opening your heart to the life of God that is being offered in these scriptures. Now, I know it's confusing. It's complicated sometimes. Um, and sometimes the lines aren't just black and white. And I think Jesus is saying that here. But there isn't just two options. There is a third way. It's creative. It is empowered by the Spirit. It's something that begins when we begin to move our hearts toward love. First of all, that God loves us in our imperfection. And guess what? God might like the person that we think is our enemy in their perfection too. That's such a hard thing for us to get. But people who are really living in the life of God, they are people that are seeing that more and more. And we are never worse as human beings when we fail to see that in another. And we are never better than when we do. So I know this is not easy, but I don't think Jesus ever invites us to anything easy. But I don't think he leaves us alone. I really believe that there is something that guides us. We help each other sometimes. There really is the spirit that helps us grow and mature in these kinds of ways. But if you in this room have experienced some kind of abuse or, or in some, some kind of abuse, please hear this. Um, there is nothing in the text, in any of these texts, that would say you should just take it. And that's the Christianly thing to do. No. But can we all agree that there is an invitation in here? There might be a more creative way than just taking it and, and um, you know, being a wimp for Jesus or, you know, pulling out a sword and hacking someone's arm off or whatever. Like, there has to be something in between. And that's what we're being invited to. I love it, Dallas Willard. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever read any of his stuff, but he was a philosopher pastor. And um, he teaches so much about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And he says this, I just want to read this to you. He says, when I'm blessing a person who's cursed me, he says, I'm not doing it just because Jesus told me to do it. I'm doing it because I discovered how good it is. And then discovering that, 
I've come to admire Jesus even more. Now, I got to tell you, this text was, to me, seemed impossible until I actually stepped back from it and I went, let me think about this first. I started looking at people who hate their enemy. I don't know if you guys have ever done this. Look at, watch someone who is just overwhelmed with hate for another. And just step back and witness what is going on, how they're reacting, what they're feeling, the things they're doing in life. Um, and when I've really stepped back in some ways and just, let me take a look at her. When someone hates their enemy, what does that look like? That was a game changer for me because I started looking and going, as much as I have compassion for that person, I don't want to be like that. Like, this seems to be all-consuming to them. Like, they can't see any other area of their life. This hate just grows and grows and grows, and it is like a weed. Um, I have that crabgrass in my yard, and if anyone has crabgrass, it just takes over. Like, you'll tear it up, right? And then, like, a week later, it's back again. Like, how did that thing grow? Like, there was nothing there. Um, Hate is just this insidious, destructive thing. You give it an inch, it's going to take two. You give it two, it's going to take a foot. And when, it's, when it begins to be released, it's a really difficult thing to stop. So the game changer for me is going, you know what? I'm not sure that I think hating my enemy is a better way to live or a better way to be human. So, and here's the thing. Um, the Bible in the way that word resist was saying, we're talking first century, very barbaric kind of warfare. You know, well, that's the way the world worked. In fact, your God was only the true God if your army that worships this God beat the other army, right? So this is all that first century world knows. It's a barbaric world. And at this moment, even the Jewish text that says, hey, wait a minute, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We can't just let this thing keep escalating. Because what happens when... Hate is just given free reign. It never stops at an appropriate part. Where, at what point do you go when you're really hating, I've got enough, I feel like I'm even? It, it, it never seems to be satisfied. That is not a better way to live or to be human. So you guys just, you think about that. So two things, I'm gonna wrap up with this. Two things are happening here because the Roman world is being led by these Caesars. And the Caesars ruled the world by violence. They say it's by peace, but it's peace by the sword. So they'll come and they'll go, we're going to bring peace here, but you're going to do what we say. And if you don't, you're going to face the sword. So peace comes by death. But Jesus is showing up in this first century world where, and by the way, some of the language that Jesus, the Christians use, like Jesus is Lord, that wasn't just something that fell out of heaven. That is in revolt against the Roman world saying Caesar is Lord because that is what they said. Caesar's, Caesar's claimed to be sons of God. And so these Christians in this little obscure part of a kingdom are going, Jesus is inviting to us to this different way. So is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? And these Christians begin to believe Jesus is Lord. He's actually showing us a better way. So Caesar, what's he do? He kills his enemies. Jesus says to love your enemies. Caesar crucifies those who resist him. And Jesus offers himself in sacrificial love. So you want to know what made that first church and these first Christians powerful? They saw something in that sacrificial love that they thought trumped the violence in the world. And they, with all their hearts, believed that is a better 
way to live. So it isn't, it isn't a sad moment because I'm sure there were many people that thought Jesus was going to raise up this military army and resist Rome, and he didn't. He sacrifices his life, and this sacrificial love begins to change the world we live in. So no longer is it just an eye for an eye, but now it's, hey, can we rid our hearts of hate? Can we, can we grow as human beings and allow our hearts to find a creative way forward that isn't violent. So this is just revolutionary, what is happening here. And then I just want to leave you with this last part. It says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What might that be saying to us today? Be perfect as your heavenly... I used to see it as like a moral thing. Um, when I was a little boy, you kind of saw that like God's perfect. You just, you know, you need to be perfect in his presence. That's why I used to stand for pictures. You see pictures of me as a little boy, I'm like this. I was like, I'm doing exactly what the the photographer told me to do. And that's the way I felt as a boy following Jesus. I said, I want to be perfect. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think Jesus is saying this. Divine perfection is precisely the ability to include and forgive all imperfections. What's actually happening on the cross, what Jesus is doing, he's living this text out. He's showing us a different way. Divine perfection, Perfection is not, you know, smiting the people who have done the wrong things. Divine perfection is the sacrificial love that says what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That, in some way, lifts something inside of me. And if I could just open my heart a little bit to that and begin to practice it. If you can just open your heart a little bit to that and begin to practice it. My experience has been you begin to find this absolutely is a better way to live. So for us this morning, if we're going to be like the Father is perfect in heaven, what do we need to include and forget? It's imperfect in our lives. Is it something about us? Is it something that just keeps besetting us? And we just, we need to come to this moment and go, wow, this, I need to grow. I need healing here. This needs to change. But I don't think what I'm getting is someone wagging their finger at me. I think what I'm getting is the sacrificial love saying, hey, if you'll fall into this, yeah, I'll include that imperfection and I'll forgive and you'll grow. Yeah. What, what might that mean for you this morning? I couldn't think of a better way than for us to um, take communion this morning because Jesus backs up what he says and if you ever question, what did Jesus mean by that? You could look at these gospels. You could look at the text. You could see how he interacted with people. You could see the way he confronted violence. And by the way, might I remind you, Jesus wasn't the good little Jew when he came into the temple. What did he do? He began turning over table, tables. Now, I don't think he did any harm to anyone, but he got angry. So, uh, yeah, this guy we follow is trustworthy. And he's probably angry about the things that we should be more angry about and less angry about the things that maybe we could all be a little less angry about and grow as human beings. But this image of sacrificial love on the cross, I think is the absolute most beautiful image that any, any human being can have. And so this morning, I'm going to invite Tim and Brandon to come up. Um, we're going to spend just about five minutes here. I'm going to walk you through a liturgy. It's called Here Are My Hands. And this is just going to prepare us for communion. 
And then um, some of our leaders are going to be back at the tables, and I'm going to ask you to get out. We'll get out right here, and you'll walk that way, and then just come back to your seat. But you're just going to go ahead. They're going to hand it to you, and they're going to say, this is the blood of Christ. This is the body of Christ. And I want you just to take that, and I want you to receive it as a gift. You don't do anything to earn that at all. And there's lots of different ways that people see this this act that we're going to do here this morning. It's a sacrament. To me, it's where the presence of Christ can be experienced in a visible or physical way. So we're not just going through the motions. But I do want you to know this. When you take this, the juice, which is grape juice and the bread, I want you to have an image of this. This is nourishing my spiritual life in some way. Because I want to be that person that Christ says human beings could be. And maybe somehow, that is a mystery to all of us, maybe in taking this, it's a spiritual kind of nourishment that will open our eyes, open our hearts, that we could live into this and we could be the light to the world and that we ourselves can find this is a better way to be human. And it feels good. I'm not just doing this anymore because a guy told me, a preacher. I'm not just doing this because it was written and read in this book and Jesus said it. I'm doing it because now I'm beginning to see there is absolutely no better way to live than this.